The Blood Flow Restriction Podcast is brought to you by Saga, a world leader in innovative BFR technology. For more information on our Bluetooth-enabled auto-calibrating BFR cuffs, head over to our website at saga.fitness. And if you'd like to pick up a set for yourself, you can save 20% with the discount code BFRPODCAST. On today's episode of the BFR Podcast, we welcome Nathan Smith. Nathan completed his PhD at Murdoch University in Perth, Australia, where the focus was investigating endurance adaptations from BFR training with cyclists. This episode serves as a masterclass on the application of BFR for enhancing endurance performance. We discuss the physiology of aerobic bouts under blood flow restriction, the markers of endurance and how BFR can potentially augment or enhance them, and then some of the adaptations that appear to be unique to BFR training, as in not achievable with traditional aerobic or anaerobic training. Lastly, we spoke about some of the exciting literature ahead in the world of BFR and chatted about questions that we're hoping to have answered with further research. So without any further ado, let's jump right into the show. Man, well then, the, the first, just to set the stage, could you give a little bit of, of your background and what led to your interest in blood flow restriction training? Mm. So I first got introduced to occlusion uh, in my undergrad and master's at, uh, in Loughborough University by Richard Ferguson, who is quite well known in the BFR space as it is. Um, from there, I was started then applying for PhDs, et cetera. And then I got offered this PhD at Murdoch University in Perth. Um, it was looking at BFR and endurance cycling. Now, I'd not done too much cycling before, but I had some background in running. Um, so I, I melded the two together. It was on the athlete, which I really enjoyed uh, working with, or really got to work with. And then, yeah, this PhD naturally suited me very, very well. Uh, from there, I really developed sort of slits on BFR for endurance athletes specifically, um, leading to where we are today. Can you then, so, because we're going to get into obviously BFR specifically, some mm. of maybe your, your research, um, but to set the stage a little bit, can we define a few terms, uh, mm. specifically as, as it relates to markers of endurance? So most people are familiar with at least the concept VO2 max, mm-hmm. but might not even have familiarity with, with what it means precisely. So could mm-hmm. you just like define simply VO2 max and then other markers of endurance? I know you discussed some of them in your paper. Mm. So. The classic definition of VO2 max is the maximum rate of oxygen consumption given per minute, usually. Um, that can be expressed just absolutely, uh, irrespective of your body weight or more commonly in rel- relative to your body weight. So milliliters per kilogram per minute. Um, what it is in terms of a practical sense is how good is your body at using oxygen? Okay. How well can it convert it to energy for mechanical work? Um, other things that come into play with that are things like uh, your thresholds, your lactate thresholds. Uh, a new one that's popping up is your critical power as well. Um, and then the third determinant is your efficiency or economy of motion, we usually describe it as. Um, how those all interplay is um, your vehicle act determines how much energy for mechanical work you get out of every piece of oxygen. Um, and the other two then dictate what speed you run, cycle, row at for that given amount of oxygen. Um, and then ultimately they feed into performance. And then underneath that, you've then got several different, what we call uh, morphological components, things that you can change, like your stroke volume, um, your heart rate, uh, your fa- muscle fiber composition, things like that. So then can you paint a bit of a picture of, 
the physiology of an endurance bout under BFR. So I guess for, for, to make it a little bit more contextual, uh, cycling, maybe stationary cycling, um, certain parameters, maybe a moderate to low intensity cycling bout, same human performing the same session, uh, under BFR and not under BFR. Can you highlight some of the differences in physiology? Mm. So, uh, just for context, let's say that they're working at the same power output, the same speed, okay? It's 150 watts, which for most good cyclists will be low, maybe moderate intensity, okay, depending on how big you are. Um, the differences with BFR and without BFR is BFR will increase things like your heart rate, it'll increase your RPE, and it will also give you um, things such as pain, obsession of pain, discomfort, just from the restrictive nature of the cuffs. Um, they're the big overarching differences okay um and that's if we set the power at a fixed sort of uh, fixed number okay the other and more common way that you would describe intervals is just sort of self-paced going off how you feel um in which case the opposite happens so you would typically get the same perceived exertion okay because it's how you feel uh, but then things like your heart rate would be slightly lower okay by maybe five to ten beats per minute um, your power output would drop significantly, um, and your pain would, and the comfort would be ever so slightly higher. So what BFR basically does is it exaggerates the physiological stress that you see, okay, for any given power output or speed that you want to work at, um, which makes things harder. And typically something else that will happen that people don't really think about is sort of fatigue that you get from that sort of session. Um, I look at something called neuromuscular fatigue, which is how well you can reduce force um, at any given point. When you use BFR, um, I found that although the power had dropped significantly, the fatigue was exactly the same, the time course over that session, which means that you get more fatigue per, uh, per kilometer of speed or power output that you work at. There's more fatiguing, essentially. And where, where would the potential benefits be in either... Uh, you were saying kind of self-regulating your exertion or keeping a fixed rate uh, and not modifying power output. Mm. So neither is better than the other, as far as we know so far. And um, they've both got pros and cons. So if you look at fixed power, you're almost guaranteeing that you're going to get a lot more physiological stress. The disadvantage is, can you tolerate the pain and discomfort? Um, and that's something that I found some people can't do. Um, it's just it's really difficult. Some people experience it more than others, the sort of level of pain. If you want to self-regulate, it means that it's far more tolerable, but you run the risk of not having that additional stress that BFR may provide you on top of the same equivalent non-BFR. And as we sort of know, we use BFR because it gives you that added stress. Um, so again, there's pros and cons. Which one you use depends on if you're really able to tolerate pain and what you want to get out of the session, essentially. Um, easier sessions, if you want to make it low intensity, will probably be best at a sort of fixed power. Um, as you start to get more and more intense and chasing those specific adaptations that you might want, which we might talk about later, um, self-paced may be the way forward. Um, but again, if you can tolerate the pain. So then what is the kind of elevator pitch for you've got, you're working with endurance athletes looking to increase performance for implementing BFR into their existing periodization. Um, can you kind of make the case a little bit there? Mm. So 
the dangerous athletes that I've spoken to, the elevated pitch is, for most of you, your central adaptations, your heart and cardiovascular system are pretty good already. The weakness will mainly lie probably at the muscular level. Okay. And that's what BFR stresses the most, the musculature. Um, so it is a really good way of putting stress on that system and trying to elicit adaptations at that level without stressing your heart and lungs. Because mainly they're the things that will stop you first. Um, so how you perceive your heart rate to be in max heart rate, et cetera. If you can lower the cardiovascular stress ever so slightly or limit it, but really exaggerate that peripheral stress, might see some benefit there. But it's just that you're not really going to get from your normal everyday high-intensity interval training um, or long, slow rides that you might do. Have you found that to be, so if you're adding, or if you've got a reduced cardiovascular stress over time, multiple sessions with endurance athletes, have you found that to be something that cumulatively uh, they find easier to in include in their programming over time, like less fatigue accumulation over time, or uh, is the trade-off with, you know, increased uh, stress on the muscle kind of nicks it out? We don't know for, uh, for definite just yet. Uh, the, what we think is happening is because of that extra stress on the muscle, it's sort of balancing out that slightly lower cardiovascular stress anyway. So the overall stress that you get from a session, it's exactly the same. Um, so it's, if I were to recommend it, sort of your interval style training for BFR, it would be using the same sort of parameters as training without BFR. So 40 hours rest between, maybe two, three sessions a week at most, okay, because it is still quite fatiguing. And a uh, benefit, I guess, there would be reduced time spent training, right? Because you're, you're, go you're going to, I guess, all things considered equal, same power output. You're going to reach whatever, uh, I guess, stimulus you're after quicker uh, mm. than you would without the added effect of the occlusion. Yeah, for sure. So as soon as you put the cuffs on, you, you start getting accumulated. Well, pretty much as soon as you put them on. Accumulation of lactate, things like that. Um, you see the effect as early as 30 seconds in some cases, just anecdotally that we've looked at and how sort of our pistons have felt and things like that. First 30 seconds, you really start to feel it. Um, and if you've gone too hard, you know about it. <laughs> yeah, I was reading uh, intense, I think it was a, couple, a group of 40 or 50 elite, I want to say cyclists, if they were to attempt maximum power output for it was a short period of time, I can't remember the parameters, under 80% occlusion or something, almost all of them said like it, the pain was intolerable. Have you yeah. found that to be true? Mm. So uh, there's a study that, um, it's actually with a journal at the minute, we put them at the first ventilatory threshold. So if the border between low intensity and, uh, and moderate intensity, sorry. Uh, some people couldn't complete 10 minutes of that. Uh, and, and this was a, these are trained cycles. Uh, so really, uh, really good cyclists. They should be able to cycle at that level for a good two to three hours without the cuffs on. Um, but as soon as you put the cuffs on, I think he stopped after four and a half minutes. So yeah, the, like, like I said, the level of pain that you get, it different from person to person. Some people can't tolerate it. What are some of the adaptations you touched on earlier that, that we're going to see from adding in BFR mm. to your session? So the adaptation that I think is really interesting uh, that we'll start off with is an increase in femoral artery diameter that we've seen. So this was a paper by Christiansen and, and the lab out in Europe. Uh, they did 
it, it was essentially new extensions um, and they compared the left and the right leg, but they did it in a way that was more endurance based in nature. Um, as soon as they took the cuffs off, the diameter of the femoral artery was increased quite significantly, actually. Practically, that means that you're going to get better oxygen delivery to the muscle. So if, when you take the cuffs off and you go and do a race, if you've got better oxygen delivery, you will be able to go faster. That's probably one of the main adaptations that we know will probably happen in most cases, um, especially for your endurance athletes. The other ones are somewhat hypothetical because we're still trying to figure out which ones work, which ones don't. Uh, the idea is that most adaptations or mechanisms rather will be similar to strength training with BFR, uh, but there may be some nuance there as well. The other things that are probably going to happen uh, in terms of like your thresholds, for example, uh, are increased buffer capacity. So how well you can uh, buffer the lactate in your blood, for example, using bicarbonate and things like that. Um, increased capillarization. So more capillaries per uh, meter, uh, sorry, centimeter squared of muscle. The better that is, the better oxygen delivery, but also the better removal of waste products in metabolic, by metabolic byproducts. And then the third is looking at uh, your strength, really. We know that BFR improves strength. Uh, exactly how we're trying to work that out, even the resistance strength of the chip. But what that does is it potentially improves your economy of motion. Okay, so they're probably the three main ways that you can improve those three determinants of performance that I touched upon earlier. Um, Very interesting. So uh, let's go through each of those. So the increase in femoral artery diameter, yeah. uh, we think, at least currently, I understand that we're really early on here, that this potentially could be somewhat exclusive to BFR training. Yep. So, oh, no, do you want to go? go? No, 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 go ahead. I'll jump in after. Uh, so the, the idea behind why we've seen that increase is because when you put the cuff on, you're really compressing the arteries um, and putting a lot of uh, peripheral resistance on the blood vessels. Now, when you take the cuffs off, the idea is that the, or and the mechanism you do that actually could have an impact. Um, but when you take the cuffs off, the artery is allowed to expand. Um, and that can then create long-term sort of adaptations. But you won't get that sort of stress, that mechanical stress on the arteries without VFR because you've got free-flowing blood. Okay. When you sort of, for lack of a better word, impinge that artery, that seems to be quite useful in terms of adaptations for BFR, the, the central level anyway, cardiovascular system. So blood flow has been occluded, and then when it's allowed to pass through, it sort of uh, creates a sheer force against the artery mm -hmm. wall. And that is that uh, just a temporary adaptation? That lasts, like, is it transient? Or do we think that over time, this could chronically in increase the size of your femoral artery or diameter? It would be the same as sort of, training without BFR, if you don't use it, you lose it. So it, more than likely, as soon as you stop using BFR within, I don't know what it would be, but probably around about a month, you might start to see losses in that improved from all of your diameter. Um, how you would maintain that is a different story. It may be you do one session per week. You may have to continue doing three or four that got you there sessions per week. Um, but yeah, that is sort of the unknown at the minute. But that I think is very interesting because that's that you can, if it is something, especially if it's something, you know, one to two ish sessions a week, generally BFR sessions are fairly short. That's something you can program, program in relatively painlessly um, mm. and potentially capture a benefit that's very unique to BFR training. 
The interesting thing to think about with that though is, does the client need it? Because if they're, let's say they're sedentary and they're going from just a couch potato, um, they're probably going to get more bang for the book not using BFR and just doing traditional training. Okay. When do you sort of start to introduce BFR? Uh, it's probably more towards that well-trained end where they've got all the applications they can from normal training of the vast majority of them. Okay. And looking for that extra 1%, 2% to help them win races, et cetera. Makes perfect sense. The, so the, the second, uh, one you mentioned there was increased capitalization. Mm. Uh, again, again, there, is there anything that we can see that would be unique to BFR specifically? But not necessarily unique to BFR because we, there's research that shows capitalization with just high intensity interval training. Um, now we've not really compared too much compared, uh, comparison between normal interval training and then interval training with BFR. There's some things there that which, and sort of the, the protein synthesis and uh, pathways, uh, which suggest that you might get more with BFR or there's maybe some additional capitalization. Okay. But this was in trained athletes. So they'd already got quite a good level of capitalization. In that study, they did quite use BFR during exercise. It was, uh, they did 30 second sprints without BFR and they applied the occlusion in the rest period. Okay. So what that would do is uh, you're lengthening the amount of time that muscles under stress, because okay, that 30 seconds will build quite a few metabolites, et cetera. Um, and then you're clamping the blood flow, creating quite a uh, metabolically active environment in the muscles still, even during the rest period. And then the, uh, increased economy of motion as a result mm. of probably increased strength, mm -hmm. obviously if we took a bodybuilder, powerlifter, even a Olympic weightlifter, anybody who resistance trains commonly or frequently, they're not going to have any sort of increase in strength by, uh, endurance training under BFR. No. Uh, but for somebody who potentially doesn't resistance train very often, uh, an endurance athlete where that's very, very small portion or non-existent portion of their period mm -hmm. or of their training, uh, are we potentially suggesting that the increase in strength is coming from the B, uh, BFR occlusion during their endurance training. Um, so they're actually getting s slightly stronger. Yes. Okay. Um, so strength training for endurance athletes isn't huge as on as a whole, really. Um, there's some really good, uh, hubs here in Perth that are looking to uh, program that for some clients, et cetera, but on the whole is endurance athletes don't strength train. Um, so what would be easy? Would it be getting them in the gym, doing squats, deadlifts, whatever? Or would you say, okay, just go on your bike and put BFR on? So that might be a good method of getting them to see those benefits in strength without doing traditional strength training. I'll caveat with saying that probably traditional strength training will give you better benefits, but some is probably better than nothing. Um, now in terms of how that would occur, there was a it's actually been about 15 years since the study came out. Um, they simply walked on a treadmill with BFR on and they saw improvements in strength. So you probably don't have to do really intense cycling or uh, rowing, uh, probably running even with BFR, potentially see benefits in strength. Those athletes were, I'm pretty sure they were basketball players off the top of my head. Um, and they still saw those benefits in strength. So potentially low intensity training with BFR could be quite beneficial in terms of your strengths. 
Yeah, that's interesting. It's kind of like the the sell for a for a more elite endurance athlete is okay. Look, if we can get you resistance training at least somewhat often, that's step one. Uh, if you're not, so I guess where we would need to come to some sort of consensus is, you know, where is the point of diminishing returns? Like some level of strength is going to significantly improve your economy of motion. Uh, can that level of strength be achieved or some of it be achieved through just BFR endurance training exclusively? If, if that's true, then uh, there's maybe a little bit more of a case for pushing for that for an endurance athlete to build strength. Um, again, with the idea that probably resistance training is your best bet. Mm, exactly. Um, maybe one, day, one way that you would do it is you talk about in the preseason, um, the first four, six, eight weeks, they start training, they do BFR on the bike, um, get some strength gain, and then you try and maintain it for the rest of the season. Uh, it, it depends on what athlete you've got and what their limitations are, the weaknesses. But that could be a way that you implement it rather than trying to build it throughout an entire year, for example. So, so then on that, how, how would we, can we get into a protocols specifically? There's a ton out there. I'm sure there's no magic protocols, but as far as how you're implementing it, you're working directly with cyclists or a lot of your focus is with cyclists. Mm. Um, can you walk through some protocols that you've seen uh, that you tend to implement as far as timing, duration, et cetera? Yep. So the, the real overarching recommendations for BFR are for no more than 20 minutes per session. Okay. That's just from a safety standpoint. Um, the other thing to think about are you, the relative intensity of that BFR. So you've got something called reclusion pressure. Um, essentially, when you hit that pressure, you've got no blood flow uh, through your arteries. And you don't need to be at that level to use BFR. Uh, potentially disadvantageous as well. The recommendation is somewhere between 40 and 80%. Um, now, anywhere within that range has been shown to be effective. Uh, so that's sort of like the thing specific to BFR. So with that in mind, you're not going to do a two-hour ride with BFR on. Um, potentially very, very dangerous. You You'll probably get a blood clot if you keep under that consistently. Um, so they're going to be short sessions. With that in mind, you probably want to going to do some sort of interval style. Um, now, your intervals traditionally can be as low as 30 seconds, okay, a 30 second sprint, all the way up to sort of like 16 minutes. We think that the best is probably somewhere in the middle of that. Um, if you try and do a 30 second sprint with BFR, even with a low pressure, it could be quite painful and probably intolerable. So anywhere from really one minute to roughly 10 minutes might be your best bet. Okay. And then you split up the 20 minutes into however much you can really. Um, if it's do a 10 minute block, two 10 minute blocks. Okay. With a bit of rest in between. Um, it might be, you want to do four minute blocks, in which case you can probably do four or five. Of them. Um, so that's generally how you're going to set out the session. Okay. Um, now how much rest do you have? How much recovery, how long that, um, interval is going to be will depend on the intensity of the BFR. If the intensity is higher, you probably want to go short on the length of the interval ever so slightly, um, and probably lengthen the rest period because of that physiological stress that we pushed on before. If the percentage of your occlusion pressure is lower, so perhaps 40%, you could probably get to those 10 minutes. Um, of cycling in, in one go. In terms of sessions per week, just a little bit earlier, uh, two, maybe three sessions a week um, at most. Again, you need to remember you need to recover. 
and you need to fit it in with you of the training, really. Um, so that's how I would, as a, an overview, schedule a week worth of BFR training. In the sessions, are you, because I know there's discussion around intermittent versus continuous, um, mm. where I guess the idea with intermittent is you are potentially capturing some of that uh, sheer stress on the artery mm -hmm. and capturing some of that increased femoral artery diameter benefit. But it seems like logical that even if you did a continuous session, uh, once you remove the cuff, you would still have that same effect, correct? When the session is over? Yes. Yeah. Um, so you're going to get some good benefits using either method. Um, the mechanism of how that would work is it probably slightly different between if you did the BFR continuously for all for the entire session or if you took it off the rest periods. Um, so maybe using both uh, in a periodized um, sort of program could be beneficial. Um, but in terms of which one's better, we, we don't know. At the minute, do whichever you prefer, really. Um, if you like that rest period, because it lets you get a bit higher in, because sort of the, the power output, the intensity, um, sure, go for it. If you want to do a long, easy, slow, um, sort of 10 minute bout, try a continuous. Okay. Um, that might not be an issue. But yeah, no, great point. So one ish to 10 minutes in general, um, separated by whatever rest is needed. Uh, or general, you don't have specific protocols on work to rest ratios. Not yet. We would normally use the sort of the standard. So, uh, one to one, one to two, depends on how long the interval really would be. Um, coaches will be, will understand sort of how to roughly implement it. And after one or two sessions, you'll understand how fatigue sort of works. Um, although BFR gives you more fatigue throughout that session, the the recovery is pretty quick. Um, so in one of my studies, we did a four minute interval and then a four minute rest period. Um, recovery was pretty much the same after a couple of minutes. And there's an earlier study as well that's shown that as soon as you take the cuff off, you recover pretty quickly. Interesting. So would you, so we're saying, okay, 20 minute sessions in general, mm -hmm. one to 10 minutes, um, on and off. Are you, and, and you're alternating probably because we're trying to get capture benefits from both between deflating in between your intervals and just literally leaving it inflated for 20 minutes straight. Yes. You okay. can do today. And then uh, as far, go ahead. Uh, so yeah, if you're gonna leave it inflated for 20 minutes straight, it would definitely be on that lower end of the intensity. Okay. Um, you'll, you will want a rest period in there at some point, maybe two. As far as progressing, do you ever track or progress occlusion percentage. I know there's like a bit of a trade-off as you start to, you're going to have reduced capacity once you start getting up to 80 plus percent occlusion. Mm. Um, but do you ever program anything where you're gradually increasing occlusion percentage and maintaining other factors over time? Yeah, um, you certainly can increase the occlusion percentage, um, especially if you start off low and try and get most bangs to your books, so you start off at 40%. You can then gradually increase it by, let's say 5% um, every week for for eight weeks, twelve weeks, it might be for you, um, and that's another way that you you can definitely progress the load. Um, some students have, have done that and seen good benefits. So yeah. What am I missing, protocol wise, literature wise? You've been you've been kind of in the weeds here uh, on this in this space for a while. What's what's exciting? 
that you potentially thoughts you have about BFR moving forward, questions that maybe need to be answered, et cetera? Moving forward, um, I what I find really interesting is sort of the, the pain aspect of it and how we can minimize how someone would perceive that pain to be. Because um, if you lower the pain, they can more than likely go hard in the session and hopefully get more benefit. Um, that would be a very good area for us to learn more about, especially in the near future. The other thing would be more concrete guidelines on how we would prescribe exercise with BFR, um, in terms of the aerobic side of it, anyway. Because as I mentioned, we've got pros and cons between big power or big speed and self-paced. Um, both probably beneficial to some degree. However, we just need some guidelines that we can give athletes and say, okay, if you are uh, this level of athlete, if you've got this few capacity thresholds, okay, do this. Um, once you start to develop those, uh, I think the, the use of BFR can become more widespread. Okay. And then we can implement it in different areas. So for training for performance, training for rehab, for example, um, how you'd implement it in a, sort of a maintenance phase as well, things like that. They're the two big areas, I think, that deserve a bit of attention. Can you elaborate a bit on the perception portion? Like what your thoughts further on that? Um, in terms of how you propose uh, we would go about uh, learning more about this, uh, what questions you think need to be answered um, and what potential benefits we could, we could find from answering those questions. Mm -hmm. So already just outside of before, we've got some strategies that we know what really well from minimizing discomfort and pain um, and improving adherence and, and things like that. One of them is actually interval training, um, funnily enough, because people prefer that to going and cycling for 30 minutes straight in general. Um, so can we use that same train of thought to sort of make be a far more enjoyable? Um, maybe take away, if you give them, I don't know, a, a bit longer rest, can they then perform better in their interval? get more bang for their book. Um, if you did um, a minute, is that better than if you did a 10 minute in terms of how the person perceives the benefit to be? Okay. Once we start learning that, how you then implement it for each individual becomes a bit clearer. Because um, if, if 10 minutes gives you slightly better physical adaptation, but the one minute one is received great adherence, you're going to probably want to prescribe one minute. But again, that's theoretical. It could be the opposite way around. We just, we don't know yet. I think some of that too could just play to the psychology of understanding, you know, when we're, there's an end in sight that seems a mm. little bit uh, closer, I think people mm. are willing to push a bit harder. Mm, yeah. And I learned that from my days as a coach in basketball, which is slightly unrelated. But yeah, you definitely have those people that are willing to push themselves really, really hard. And those other people that are, they're kind of just crudes. They're, they're working hard, don't get but they don't like that really short, high intensity, sort of half an hour session. Um, and again, it's whatever helps them improve the most over the course of a season. Yeah. So, yeah. What do you think? That's a bit off topic, but it's just from your coaching career, mm -hmm. did you find any commonalities in, you know, some of your athletes that were so willing to lean into discomfort versus those that weren't? Yeah. Um, so for a bit of context, I coach sort of university level athletes. The ones that were more willing to lean into the pain, comfort, the ones that wanted to make a career out of it, typically, 
In terms of their underlying like predispositions, uh, in terms of psychology, I, I don't know. Never analyzed that sort of stuff. But yeah, the, the ones that were incredibly focused um, and pushed themselves the hardest wanted to become a professional. Seems to be a, a common trait amongst TV athletes. Yeah, the want to win. Yeah. That and we sense. see that. Yeah. You still in cyclists as well. You imagine pushing yourself to your maximum speed for an hour, two hours. Okay. It's quite mentally challenging. Um, so yeah, even the athletes are a different bunch entirely, it seems. Not just physiologically, but also psychologically. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. The, uh, the second thing you mentioned, uh, as far as further exploration would go, would just be more tailored and bespoke protocols based on goal. Mm. Um, do you, uh, with the understanding, obviously, that literature is still lacking there, you personally, or maybe, you know, somebody who's very close to you, who's looking and going, what, what do you speculate here? Um, like, what do you, if you're experimenting at all with BFR based on current limited understanding uh, of certain potential protocols, is there anything that you're working on or you think may have some merit to it that just there isn't any literature to support yet, but uh, just maybe a hypothesis? Um, it, this wouldn't really apply to your endurance-based athlete, but a few discussions that I've had is the, the benefit of gaining mass from BFR could be a little underrated. Um, Especially for your team to athletes where mass is quite important. Um, I had a few discussions with coaches where teams are beginning to use BFR, not for the strength benefit necessarily, but just to put up in the size because that's quite important for their players in terms of uh, being up to fourth their position, uh, opposition out of the way. And without trying to give away what sport uh, I've been linked to. But yeah, that is, that could be quite useful for some people. Um, just like the, the strength benefit could be important for cyclists. So that's one key thing. Um, just say a question again. What else we, did you want to know? Yeah, that's, I mean, that was more just interesting thoughts that um, you're kind of willing to maybe, you know, sometimes there's not enough literature to support something that you're going to speak about maybe publicly mm. or, or put your name on, but. And, you know, when you're training in your garage, you think, oh, there might be some merit to doing this. I think it'd be fine as a maintenance tool could be quite useful. Um, in terms of maintaining the adaptation for endurance sports specifically. Yeah. So there's a study, I think it was by Ronestad, um, definitely a European group, where they, they took some cyclists, they did the normal season, um, and then half of them did whatever they wanted, pretty much nothing, okay, just some intensity for... Was it three months? I think the other group did one, I think it was one int uh, interval session per week. Okay. The interval sessions, that group, they didn't see a big drop off in performance when they came back in preseason. Okay. Maybe episode slightly. Okay. But there was that benefit. The other benefit was their rate of improvement in preseason was pretty good. They improved really well over that preseason period. Whereas the other group, they just got back up to where they were before. Makes sense when you think about it in terms of like just maintaining your thing. Maybe BFR can also be used in there to maintain some adaptations, um, for teams to athlete perhaps to keep the arrow bait. Okay. Instead of going to do long runs. Okay. Or doing an interval session if they don't like that. Maybe put a quote unquote low intensity session 
with BFR on. Um, so things like that. The third thing that I've just touched upon as well is I don't think BFR is a low intensity exercise modality. Um, we've got some preliminary research to suggest that when you put the cups on, the intensity can go from low to pass moderate and then go into the high domain. Okay. If you want to split up into three categories just for ease. Okay. That has some real implications for how you would prescribe, monitor, um, and just in general, like, what do you do with BFR? If you think it's low intensity, but the person's doing high intensity work, it's logically, um, can present some problems. So, yeah, I think they're the, the three things that I bet, I would bet are true, but we can't quite tell this yet. Yeah. I think as it relates to resistance training, the interesting literature around stopping a few reps shy of failure, and this, this is obviously exists outside of BFR as well, but, mm. um, I think traditionally the, the thought has been, well, since we're trading a bit of mechanical, uh, a bit of adaptation from mechanical stress for metabolic stress, we probably need to take all of our sets all the way to failure to max out this metabolite mm. accumulation and, you know, metabolic stress when at least from some of the literature available, it doesn't seem that training to failure is absolutely necessary under BFR, mm. um, stopping a few reps shy. And that, I mean, that's where the, we talk about relative intensity, um, or, or uh, perceived exertion, the difference between three reps in reserve and zero reps in reserve is significant. Yep. Um, and so I think understanding where to program that in, you could program the same exact session in three RIR and zero RIR. One of them might be a, a maintenance, you know, you're going to have fairly seamless recovery uh, and the other one you're going to be trashed. Mm. I think probably learning that is just as important in the endurance space. Like we're talking about what's the minimum effective dose that we can get to. Mm. I think the maintenance topic that you just mentioned is really interesting because there's the time saving, like you're mentioning, if you're able to uh, maintain your adaptations with a couple of short 20 minute sessions a week. Amazing. Um, something you just touched upon, sort of your IR, uh, in reserve and stuff like that. Um, when you do like your one rep max, not quite one, one rep max, uh, you do zero rest in reserve. You're putting a lot of stress on your central nervous system, which then gives, it takes you time to recover. And that's why you would probably schedule, um, that week where you do go really hard and then you, you recovery week. Um, the same might be true for BFR because if you're telling your muscle to push harder, but it can't because the lactate buildup in your muscle, the environment is conductive to muscular contraction. Muscle might be fine. It's not torn to pieces, but it just can't contract. That might give you a bit more sort of central fatigue, um, which some studies suggest, some don't. Um, it probably is a case of how hard are you pushing the individual? Um, cause remember we, we do quote unquote prescribe it as a low intensity in terms of the external load. But yeah, so the same might be true for BFI. It, it may take you a lot longer to recover in terms of like central fatigue mm. uh, when you go really, really hard at least. So, yeah. And the, with a BFR session, if you're reducing power output and hitting, you know, onset of blood lactate accumulation, probably a lot sooner. Mm. Theoretically, you're over the course of a session, you're getting similar exposure to blood lactate, but at less mechanical output. So there should be less maybe joint disruption, 
even muscle disruption potentially, correct? Yes. Um, that we don't know, uh, for example, we don't know what causes DOMS exactly. Um, so the, the caveat to this is what causing what it would quote quote muscle stress. But yeah, you, you're correct in, in thinking that that built in lactate doesn't cause mechanical stress. There's very little stress on the joints because there's no load going through them. Um, it's unlikely you're going to get a lot of tears within the muscle. Um, so yes, I would say do with that what you will, but it, it, there is some implications in terms of like rehab and that's probably why BFR is quite, uh, utilized quite a lot in rehab at the minute in terms of the research side of things anyway, okay. get some good research. And similarly, it gained some attraction in sort of, uh, zero gravity conditions like space flight. Because okay. you can't load the muscle that well. So if you put BFR on, re-stress it, okay, minimize um, muscular atrophy, stuff like that. This is all extremely fascinating. Is mm. there anything specific that I'm missing that you wanted to touch on? Uh, anything that jumped to mind? Not really. I think we've got all the main points. Okay, Everything else starts to get very, very nuanced. Um, which maybe we could talk about some other time, but yeah, in terms of like the overarching BFR for endurance athletes and somewhat team sports as well. Yeah, they're the, the big take on the things that I would probably present if I give a workshop on this. Well, people just got a great workshop. Uh, I think you brilliantly uh, explained all this. And like I mentioned before we started recording, it's always nice to lean on someone like yourself instead of trying to do this myself. Um, it would not have been as effective, but I appreciate your time. This has been awesome. No, thank you. It's great to come on and share information. It really is. Let's do it again. We'll do it.